Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gettler. And this is episode 44 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 14th of November. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, we've got a great interview with Joe Canatelli, who runs JC Fine Foods, which is a fascinating story about how this guy started out from a fruit shop and now it's a national concern, in fact, international. Yep, yes, since he opened up in New Zealand, he's gone international. <laughs> That's he's right. also talking about Asia and, and taking advantage of the rising... Um, the rising taste for Western foods and health foods in China. That's right. So he's uh, selling all foods to supermarkets and uh, it's a family business. It's a fascinating interview. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Saul Eslake all about tax reform. Yeah, which uh, most people seem to think would be a very good idea. Let's, let's get on with the show today. Okay. And let's hear from Joe Canatelli. Joe Canatelli, uh, you've JC's Fine Foods, you've family business, been going for 20 years. You now export to New Zealand. You have fine foods going right around Australia. You supply all the independent grocers. Tell us about the business. Well, I started, uh, well, it starts when I had my fruit shop in, uh, I had a little fruit shop in uh, when I was 20 I, that I bought, a tiny little fruit shop, and I started selling a product called Ballast Fruit Bars off the, off the counter. That was introduced to me by a couple of fellows from Adelaide as they would drive with a station wagon full of these product and, and pick up customers through Victoria. They, they eventually got to my shop and I gave it a go and I was so impressed by the sales I had asked them if they would like me to look after their distribution and, and take on and take and hopefully grow the, the business, the sales of the ballast fruit bars. And um, so on a Friday night and a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday I would uh, I would take these fruit bars to and, and uh, deliver them and, and also approach potential new customers. And um, over time, I, I found that I enjoyed it so much that uh, I ended up closing the shop and um, and, a, and and taking up a little bit of space at, um, at the rear of my parents' greengrocers in, in uh, High Street Road, Montana. From there, um, I realised very quickly I needed other products it was not I was very happy with the sales of the fruit bars but I wanted other products so I saw opportunities to sell other products to the to the to the greengrocers uh, that I was supplying and uh, found more more products to sell now, JC's, you sell every sort of nut that I, I can think of, and yes. you sell uh, dried fruits. And what, what else? Is, tell us about your range. Okay, well, essentially, we, the fruit bars were more or less a, it had real fruit in it, but it was considered over, for me, it was, I thought it, it was more a confectionery type line that would have a, a, a life cycle. And as it got more popular, um, the space that the product was given in multi-packs in the, in the chains grew. So... I thought I need to get into something that's uh, maybe a more long-term and nuts and dried fruits didn't require refrigeration, didn't require me to get up at two in the morning to go to the markets, didn't require me to be, you know, it wasn't like handling uh, any other food group, dairy or meat or fish. It was it just fitted my my um, my setup. I had a basically um, no no refrigeration and and a, and, a, and a delivery van by that time. And but also I thought well, this this is a food group. Um, well, it wasn't considered a food group at that time, but this is a food group that would suit my business. Hopefully something that I could do long term for the business. And uh, I kept on selling other products, um, snack foods, confectionery lines, products predominantly not in Woolies and Coles. It was always something that we felt strongly about and that we realised early on that the consumers, uh, sorry, the retailers um, had, a, had a better response to products that they 
that they put on the shelf um, if it wasn't in Woolies and Coles or similar to something that was in Woolies and Coles. I mean the chains, I don't mean to... You buy in from suppliers, from who from the farm or distributors, then you package and distribute to retailers. Is that the form? Yes, we do everything um, on, 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 the, on the nuts, dried fruits range, everything but grow it and retail it ourselves. Right, and, and you sell predominantly to independent grocers? Yes, that's what we're, our business is about, yeah. So this this means you've got a pretty good logistics system because you're dealing with quite a lot of people, aren't you? Yes, it's when I tell people overseas that we deal with that we where our product is um, is distributed all over Australia, they're quite quite impressed. But Australia does have a very good transport system, and uh, fortunately we have the volumes to to supply our customers directly. So how many how many independent grocers would you be supplying? I would say that active active customers that we have Australia wide um, that direct that we supply direct is a, is around the fifteen hundred mark, and we, and we send representatives to every single most to most of our customers um, where most of them receive representation um, uh, fortnightly to monthly, but others if they're in far north areas or in or outback areas at least twice three times a year. Yeah, that's pretty good. So now. The the public taste for nuts and things like that is it growing? This is I'm I'm being fortunate in that uh, as my business has grown, the the realization by the general public of the health benefits of nuts has grown. Uh, the industry in Australia has definitely grown at least fourfold in the last twenty years. Uh, worldwide, that's the same case. There's been a lot of research and development. Um, in particular, in Australia, we've got a we've got a, an organisation called Nuts for Life that do a lot of research and development, and do a lot of and and bring the um and 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 also uh, bring bring a lot of that information to to uh, the doctors and health professionals around Australia to let them know, hey, you know, this this it's scientifically proven that a handful of walnuts a day actually reduces cholesterol. That's uh, that's published in the New England Journal. So, I mean, you you also have uh you also supply independent grocers in New Zealand, is that right? Yes, we do. So how did you, you make that trick over there? Once um, it was, as, as, as a, from, I'll go back to how we, I started in an area in Croydon and, and branched out all over Victoria and eventually went into state and Western Australia was one of the last states for us to go to. And I thought, well, you know, we want we wanted to grow the business um, without having to... Um, well, we've always wanted to grow the business as much as we can uh, without having to 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 go to the chain. So that's it. It's our business is really geared around independence, and I saw New Zealand as a natural progression of that, and export. So, so I just went over there naively and started selling to the independents, and um, I was soon told that that's not the way it's done here. But we were lucky. We we were a bit naive, and we we went gun ho. We soon realised that it is different. Uh, what I found, if something works in Monturna South or in Box Hill or Geelong, it would work around Australia. And but the same pack sizes and the same mixes didn't necessar- didn't work in New South in, in New Zealand. We we had to reduce our pack sizes for one, and uh, so we learnt a few lessons the hard way. Is that because people in New Zealand are using nuts differently? They're having packs that'll go in their pocket and they take them as lunch things rather than, say, here where you've got a, you buy 750, kilo, 750 grams of cashews, for example, yep. in bulk for a home use? The price point in New Zealand uh, and the income, um, it's not the same as here. It's, it's more. 
and at the end of the day, it's a more, more expensive product. So to in order to um, uh, make it affordable for most people, we we had to reduce it. It wasn't great. We, we just went from a 500 gram to a 375 gram. And it brought that price point, that perception of price point, under the $10 mark, New Zealand. And over the $10 New Zealand mark, it was just not really attractive to people. Now, you, you've got New Zealand. Asia is next. What's happening in that front? Well, it's very hard, um, I have to say. Export is, oh, I say we've planted a lot of seeds to help our business grow overseas. But it's a, um, it is a lot of, lot of time and effort. And our, our time, we, we always have to reevaluate where we spend our time and effort. And we always have to prioritise, I should say. As we start to get a little bit of momentum in, in, in our exports where we'll be looking at investing more in that area and in personnel. Um, at the moment, it's my brother who's general manager of sales that looks after all sales that is personally handling exports. Eventually, we'll allocate that to be a full-time role as, as, um, as we see the opportunities grow. Um, there's a lot of interest from Asia a lot of interest and it's growing especially out of china for australian products we in food in particular but there's also a lot of people who who um you have to really go through a lot of contacts to find the um the diamonds so there's not there's not um it's not as easy as it as it might seem and, and of course it, the chinese taste in food is changing a lot isn't it uh look it, it's in my for what i do as their as the um, their income levels are increasing, nuts and dried fruits hit 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 the mark. It's healthy, and it's also a bit of a status at the moment to be able to afford to buy those sort of products. So, and they're very. I think the, I think in particular China is very big on status. Now, you you also supply coals and woolies, don't you? To um, to an extent, we don't do any business with Woolworths. We have done we have do and do business um, with coals, what we call job lots. And um, that's helped. That's been, I think, a win-win. Uh, I like to think it's a win-win. They've been fantastic to deal with. Uh, it's mainly to do with obviously private label, and it gives us an opportunity to move some product and uh, and gain a little bit of volume. Obviously, the main priority of our business is by far and the way independence. That our business is is focused on that. But uh, we're finding our our opportunities with Coles to, to help us gain volume has been really, really beneficial. And, and, and to be honest, they've been open and they've been very good to deal with. Coles is really um, evolving quickly and open to ideas and, and giving a lot of smaller companies. I mean, in, in respect, we're family business, we're not a multinational, but I think Coles is is very much um, their uh, their culture is is, is certainly um, moved a lot towards giving giving the giving the smaller guy a go, and seeing what happens. So you think suppliers what wouldn't be that hard off with Coles? I think there's a more opportunity with Coles. I think um, Woolworths are very a very a lot um, a lot more inflexible. Right. There might be opportunities. You, you never know. Woolworths, Woolworths might give you a call and say, can you provide us with some and job lots? Let's face it, the amount of competition in Australia is increasing. As in any business, um, competition's good and, there's, and it provides more opportunities for everyone. There's no doubt about that. Joe Canatelli, thank you very much for your time. Thank You're you welcome. very much. Thank you. Well, as we said, that it came from humble beginnings, but it's a, it's a very nice business in, in a particular area. Uh, and he does it very well. He does it, certainly does it very well. Okay, now, Saw on tax reform. 
So there's like the government's uh, tax white paper is coming out next year. Now, what's your view about that? What, what areas are needed for tax reform? Well, the Prime Minister's called for a mature debate about tax reform in Australia, and that's what I think we need. There's a number of issues that this debate ought to encompass, including the adequacy of the revenue available to governments, federal and state, for meeting the community's aspirations, especially as regarding the needs of an ageing population and our increasingly inadequate infrastructure. Secondly, there are questions about the fairness and efficiency of Australia's existing tax system and what we can do to make our tax system fairer and less distorting in the way it affects both people's and businesses' choices as to how they spend, how they work, how they invest and the like. And thirdly, there's the important question of the mismatch between the expenditure-raising responsibilities and the revenue-raising powers of our different levels of government to a much greater extent than almost any other country in the world that has a federal system. Our governments aren't, don't have revenue-raising powers that match their expenditure responsibilities. In Australia's case, the Commonwealth raises far more money than it needs to spend, whereas the states that do have the primary responsibility for key services like education, hospitals and other forms of health services, police and public transport don't have nearly as much revenue raising power as they need to meet those responsibilities. And that probably needs to be sorted out in this context as well. So what should be done? Well, there's a number of things that should be done, and not all of those, I think, can be stated with complete confidence ahead of the kind of evidence that I hope the White Paper will present, although the Henry Review that was commissioned by the previous government has obviously advanced that cause. Remember that the Henry Review wasn't allowed to consider the rate or base of the GST and the tax treatment of superannuation payments particularly to people over the age of 65. So they're areas that do, in my view, warrant further consideration. I think our existing income tax system is becoming increasingly incapable of meeting the revenue needs of the federal government. That's partly because of the difficulties in matching the scales to movements in people's incomes over time. And we're going to see, in the absence of any reform, an increasing number of people on quite modest levels of income being scooped up into higher tax brackets with deleterious effects on their willingness to work and perhaps on their willingness to comply with the system. I've long argued that Australia's tax system is almost uniquely riddled with loopholes that enable high-income people to avoid some of the obligations that by law they should be meeting and in some other instances, in perfectly legal ways to reduce the amount of tax they pay, which nonetheless undermine the integrity of the tax system and distort the kind of decisions that high-income people make with regard to how much they work or where they invest their capital. What I'd really like to see in the income tax system is a broadening of the income tax base so that many of the forms of income or vehicles through which people undertake investments and carry out business activities are brought within the tax net in exchange for lower rates of tax so that the distorting effects of high marginal rates of tax are lessened. I think we have problems in our income tax system despite the intention of the GST when it was first introduced in 2000 to tax 
a broader range of the goods and services we consume at lower rates than were covered by the previous system of wholesale sales tax. Nonetheless, as time has gone on, the GST is capturing a smaller proportion of total household spending. And while I think there are good arguments against including some areas of spending that are currently exempt, I think there are some that could be brought within the tax net that would improve its effectiveness and its equity. We might even need to consider, as New Zealand and other countries have done, trade-offs between the GST and other forms of taxation with a view to making the system more efficient in meeting all of its overall goals without compromising our equity goals. There's a whole myriad of state taxes, some of which were meant to have been abolished with the introduction of the GST in 2000, but are still with us, that in many cases cost almost as much in terms of compliance burden as they actually raise for state governments. And we ought to be thinking about the extent to which we can extract more revenue from, for example, bads such as pollution or from the taxation of land, which, unlike many other forms of wealth, can't be moved out of Australia, and as many others have written over a long period of time, is a particularly uh, non-distorting or efficient tax. So all of these things ought to be considered along with the distribution of revenue-raising sources between the federal and the state government. Now, the the two big ones that will be the most controversial will be the tax treatment of superannuation and the GST, and both of those are politically difficult. What's your view about that? Well, I think both of them ought to be considered, and it's regrettable that the Henry Review wasn't allowed to consider them. The fact that it wasn't allowed to consider them does illustrate the point about how difficult they are, and perhaps they shouldn't be considered in isolation. I mean, one of the problems that Australia faces when we debate the tax system is that people tend to look at individual proposals in isolation from one another, dismissing, for example, an increase in the GST as regressive without considering what other changes could be made to different taxes that would make a overall reform package consistent with Australians' notions of fairness and equity. So, for example, if there is, as I believe there is, on efficiency grounds, a good case for either broadening the base and or raising the rate of the GST, you might want to consider that in the context of changes to, for example, the tax treatment of superannuation, that would be highly progressive by reducing the extent to which high-income households benefit from the present distribution of concessional tax treatments for superannuation. You could also throw into that particular pot changes to negative gearing arrangements, for example, which disproportionately benefit high-income households, or franking system, frank dividends, which disproportionately benefit high-income households, or the use of trusts as a way to reduce tax, or for that matter, fringe benefits concessions for company cars. All of these things disproportionately benefit high-income earners, and And so I think if you consider the tax system as a whole and its interaction with the social security transfer system, that is, I think, an integral part of what the Prime Minister's called a mature debate, rather than seeking to judge every single measure by its impact on equity. It's appropriate in the context of a mature debate to be considering the overall impact on equity and efficiency and neutrality of all the changes that might go up to make a comprehensive reform package. The states would have a very clear view about the way GST money is distributed. 
Well, different states have different views. I mean, Western Australia in particular has been campaigning hard against a system from which for most of the 70 years prior to the last decade, Western Australia has been a beneficiary. And personally, while I don't blame the Western Australian government for seeking the best deal for its citizens, I think there's something hypocritical about the way the Western Australians are seeking to change the formula under which GST is carved up among the states. Um, New South Wales and Victoria have long been opposed to the existing arrangements and they're just continuing with their long established position. But it's basically not possible to change the formula in ways that meet the demands of the four largest states without imposing a disproportionately higher burden on the two smaller states and the two territories because it's a zero-sum game. Uh, There's certainly a reasonable case for simplifying the formula that the Grants Commission uses to carve up the revenue from the GST among the states. There's a case for making it less volatile from year to year than it has become. But the fundamental principle under which GST revenue is carved up, namely that each state, by making equal effort to raise revenue, should be able to provide its citizens with services of equal worth, a principle that's been around since 1936, is one that I think ought to remain part of the system. Which means there's going to be a lot more discussion about it. And how? what chances do you think there will be a mature debate about this? Well, that depends on the way our political, business and community group leaders conduct themselves. If they continue to argue from entrenched positions, if they continue to be uninformed deliberately by the results of recent research, if they continue to look at individual proposals in isolation from each other and from what might be a coherent, comprehensive package as a whole, then I suspect this process will get nowhere. But nowhere itself has a cost because if the tax system goes on unreformed, then increasingly governments won't be able to raise the revenue they need to meet the community's expectations for the services they want governments to provide. So in my view, failing to take a sufficiently broad-minded and informed view of the tax system with the result that nothing changes is actually a conscious choice to accept a system that will fail. So, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, what do you reckon the chances are of a higher GST? Well, I think I think there's a very good chance, or or at least a broader base. Yeah, I would think so. They're going to have to do something about the the disadvantage, though, and the and the low income, because uh, in effect, you know, in when the wages and whatnot not keeping up with inflation with uh, inflation, really, is it? Well, that's why they're going to leave it till the next election. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, they're politicians. <laughs> Don't worry about the people, just worry about getting back in power. That's right, that's all it's about. Okay, now the news, Leon. First of all, China this week recorded a better than expected trade surplus of US $45.4 billion. That's expanded 46.3% from the same month last year. Exports jumped 11.6% year on year to $206.87 billion, while imports rose 4.6%. At the same time, uh, export growth, however, slowed in October from a 15.3% increase year, year on year rise. I mean, exports are a key engine of China's economic growth, which has faltered this year, and import growth remained weak, and that slowed from 7%. Now, China's economy grew at an annual 
annual 7.3% in the third quarter, the slowest in more than five years since the global crisis struck in early 2009. And it's been hit, of course, by a deflating property bubble and a government crackdown on corruption and weak demand from Europe. And the government set an economic growth target of around 7.5% for this year. And interestingly enough, Gary, Chinese President Xi Jinping, he gave a speech to the CEO Summit of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, uh, the APEC Forum, and he assured global business leaders about the state of the world's second largest economy. He said the country is facing risks, but he said they're not that scary. And he said even if China were to grow at 7%, it would still place it among the top in the world. What's obvious is that China's adopting to a new normal of slower but more balanced and sustainable growth. Yeah, I think so. I mean, long term, you look, you look at uh, what are the economists are saying over the much longer term, and you're seeing them predicting a growth of around 5 and sometimes under 5%. I think they're moving away from export-led growth in favour of a more consumption-driven economy. Anyway, Australia is just a few days away from securing a free trade agreement with China which has been almost a decade in the making, and it's expected to be signed on Monday. And Trade Minister Andrew Robb has been leading the final stage of negotiations in Beijing. Now, Robb concedes there are still two main sticking points, but guess what? He won't say what they are, Gary. Well, that's pretty normal in government around here for a while. you got the Victorian government building a tunnel, and they won't tell you what it's going to cost. That's right. Now, he reckons the deal will not only further liberalise trade in areas like resources, energy and agriculture, but it will also open up a whole new flank in services. He's not talking about what the details of this groundbreaking agreement, as he calls it, but it's going to focus on the services sector, so advisors in water management, healthcare, ageing, construction, education, agriculture, finance are going to be the big winners. Agriculture will be well covered by the agreement and uh, Australia is likely to offer concessions to investment restrictions on state-owned companies but not allow an influx of cheap Chinese labour. Which the Chinese particularly want and, uh, you know, they're trying to work the 457 uh, visa. That's right. Well, after that, Gary, an FTA with India will be on the shopping list. Yeah, which uh, might be a bit easier, in fact, uh, than uh, than the Chinese one, because there's a lot of things the Chinese want to protect. So let's take a look at what happens with India. Now, interestingly enough, Gary, there was a fascinating report from the firm Macroeconomics this week, and it showed that the Senate and the deteriorating iron ore price have knocked a $51 billion hole in Treasurer Joe Hockey's first budget. And it says part of the problem is that the budget is seen as unfair. When the budget was struck in May, the the iron ore price was US $103 or $119 Aussie a tonne. It has since fallen to US 83 taking as much as $10 billion out of tax revenue and helping push wage growth to its lowest level in a decade. And whereas the Treasury expected a budget deficit of $29.8 billion this financial year, sliding to $2.8 billion in 2017-18, macroeconomics expects a deficit of $47.8 billion, slipping to a still high of $24 billion by 2017. Well, yeah, and to get it down to $24 billion is going to have, be, have to be what uh, the British used to call austerity. Now, uh, this is also all quite humiliating for Joe Hockey, who's preparing to meet international finance ministers in Brisbane to push for measures to accelerate world growth as part of the G- G20. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Poor old Joe. He does copper beating, doesn't he? Still, the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Survey showed consumers are becoming more confident, but fears about the economy are still weighing on people's minds. And confidence rose 0.2% to 114.8 in the week ending November 9. And business conditions jumped by record amount in October, hitting their highest level in six years on the strong start of fourth quarter. 
That's according to the NAB's monthly business survey. The rising unemployment is still a huge worry, particularly for Victoria. Absolutely. But in terms of business conditions, the uh, index, NAB index rose 12 points to a reading of 13. Apart from the unemployment, the other worrying part is wages growth. They rose by just 0.6% in the September quarter, and that's at a record low. For the year to September, the ABS wage price index rose 2.6%. Now, that's just above the inflation rate of 2.3%. That is the lowest result since the ABS started issuing the data in 1997. And it's unchanged from the annual result for the year to June 2014, Gary. So we're, we're flatlining, aren't we? And meanwhile, the uh, Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment showed pessimists still outnumbered optimists for the ninth straight month. The index added 1.9% to 96.6 in, in November from a read of 94.8. And it stayed below 100 points now for nine months. That means there are more pessimists than, than, about the economy than there are optimists. Yeah, and I'm not surprised, are you? No. Now, demand for home loans fell in August. Official data shows slipping more than economist expectations, according to the ABS. The number of home loans granted in August fell 0.7% to, in adjusted terms to uh, 51.465. And that's, that's a bit of a worry, Gary. And that shows those conditions are not that good. No, that's true. It is worrying. Australian retailers riding a pickup in consumer spending are also feeling a tailwind from another quarter. That's the weak Australian dollar that's helping them win back business from online rivals like Amazon.com. And there was fascinating data from Quantium, a data firm that analyzes credit card transactions at the NAB. What's interesting, Gary, is that uh, global online merchants have been picking up Australian customers since 2011 when uh, the dollar surged to a near three-decade high against the US dollar. And spending growth on sites hit close to 50% in 2011. But the currency's 19% retreat from last year's peak has made those offshore sites pricing less attractive. Yeah, absolutely right. And if you're bringing stuff in, say, you're buying from Amazon in the US or somewhere like that, uh, you add paying Australian dollars for their freight costs. And in fact, a couple of things I've been looking at, it's cheaper to go down to South Melbourne and buy it there. What it means is that international websites, according to Quantium, has flattened this year compared with a 13% increase in 2013. Interestingly enough, uh, we talked before about the G20 and the Australian government is citing controversial cuts to unemployment benefits as one of the key structural reforms that will increase economic activity by 2%. The reference to the jobless reforms, which include a measure preventing unemployed people under 30 from accessing welfare payments up to to six months, comes though the changes that were blocked by the Senate. The objective of boosting economic growth by 2% above what is currently expected during the next five years, of course, is the main goal of the G20 meeting to be held in Brisbane over the weekend. And each of the countries that make up the G20 is required to submit action plans. Now, according to a draft of Australia's action plan, the Abbott government is nominating five key commitments that underpin its employment. And employment welfare reforms is ranked as the number two commitment, Gary. Yeah, well, and that is politically very, very dangerous. Well, by cutting, they say by cutting payments entirely to some unemployment requiring job seekers to search for more jobs or qualified payments, the government says it will spur the unemployment to look for work rather than live on welfare. And this will apply in uh, Launceston and Ballarat? I think, I think the government has fundamentally misdiagnosed the whole situation. Absolutely. I think what, the reason young people can't get jobs is because there aren't enough jobs out there for them. The economy isn't growing at a fast enough pace to generate those jobs, and that's the issue. And what's needed instead 
is an economic growth plan and cutting unemployment benefits is not going to boost the economy. That's not economic growth at all. No. It's politically dangerous and it's it's counterproductive. What we need is a plan to grow growth, to, to grow the economy and build jobs. At the same time, Time Warner approached the embattled Broadcaster 10 network about a $680 million takeover bid in another sign the big US media companies are turning to regions like Australia for growth opportunities. But 10 Networks Holdings' biggest shareholder, Wynn Corporation owner Bruce Gorbin, says he's not selling, and he owns 14.9% of 10. And meanwhile, 10 Networks' former chief executive, Ramp Blackley, has been linked to a private equity bid for free-to-air broadcast as the privatisation of the network emerges as a serious option under consideration by the main shareholders. And it's understood Blackley is part of a group led by US private firm, private equity firm Hellman & Friedman, which is expected to meet with TEN's management team and advisor City in the next few weeks. Well, you'd think in the end that they'd either do a deal, if Bruce Gordon wants to keep his shares, you could, the equity crowd could easily do a deal with him, and it looks as though TEN's ownership's going to change. And the final bit of news, Gary, is the Department of Immigration has dropped accounting from its list of skill occupations in demand in 2015. And that's going to be amazing. <laughs> that's amazing because uh, we've actually got a shortage of accountants. It's one of the very few areas we have got shortage. And uh, the controversial decision to drop accounting has stunned the major accounting bodies like Chartered Accountants and CPA. They've lobbied the government hard to keep it on its list. And, uh, but uh, the government's coming from another direction, Gary. I think that's uh, true uh, fairly well across the board. Uh. And, uh, and that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week we're going to have a fascinating interview with Alex Maley, who runs CPA Australia. Look forward to that. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe and we look forward to talking to you next week.